Hello. <laughs> Hello, my name is uh, Scott Putnam, and I'm going to tell you my story about my three boys, Briggs, Soren, and Ryder, who I've been alienated for for 983 days. I live in France, and a number false allegations and lies have prevented me from seeing them. And I'm using Find My Parent so that they can uh, find their way back to me. I hope you enjoy my story. In this episode of Your Double Podcast, we are speaking to Scott Putnam. His kids were abducted from him by his wife almost four years ago, and you will hear his story throughout this episode. Most people think that abduction and alienation only happens in young marriages where the couple have been married for less than a decade. However, Scott's story proves that it can happen to anyone, even if you've been married to someone for decades. This is the second part of the two-part conversation that we had with Scott Putnam. So, if you haven't heard the first part of this particular conversation, please go back to our last episode and listen to that first, because then this particular episode will make more sense to you. Now, without further ado, let's get into the episode. Scott, uh, your stories so far have been quite a heartbreaking one, and at the same time. I have no idea that uh, things can flip that much that fast. Yours is rather unique in this particular situation. But with that said, right? Do you associate everything that's happening currently to a mental state, like you know, narcissistic behavior? Because she seems like somebody who will do anything, you know, cheat, lie, coerce people, and and do anything within her power to make sure that uh, she comes out clean. So, what do you think about that? Yeah, let's. Um, I'll, I'll I'll be a little more philosophical for a moment. The um, it it begins. I think it begins with a midlife crisis. You have a you have a fear. But what's what's happened is, um, once you are exposed, once you're publicly humiliated, which is what happened to my wife with like losing this protective order. She made all these claims of what a horrible father I was and um, that I was abusing the kids and it turns out she was abusing the kids and that humiliation, then it becomes reflexive and these lies then start to metastasize into bigger and bigger lies. And you use the, the court system then becomes like a weapon um, against each other and it gets, um, it gets more and more severe. So you continue to go down this pathway where it ultimately leads to violence. Um, somebody gets, I mean, you're not just, it's not just child abuse. You're, you know, you're physically abused and then ultimately to murder, which is what we see in a lot of these parental alienation cases, um, that they ultimately end in somebody, a murder of a suicide of some kind, because there's no restoration um, of the actual um, lies that that be that begin it it either some something needs to temper temper it it's not um there's a midlife crisis is what how it begins or you could say a moment of anxiety there's some kind of crisis that starts this it's mental illness um i want to be i want to be very clear this from like if we go back to the beginning of my story this is not just like a marriage that's gone wrong um it there was a mental health crisis and now it's metastasized into true malevolence um where it's really it's harming everybody i mean my wife's destroying herself she's destroying our kids she's destroying me and there's no the the courts don't provide any um mechanism to to solve this nor do the police um and we'll 
I'm, tr I'm trying to get her help to help just reduce her fears and hopefully everything will, will come down. That's the best, um, I think the best scenario for me uh, and for my kids going forward. But there's no, there's no legal solution where I can go to the court and say, like, there's no way we could share parenting. I haven't gone into that, but there was a number of times early on where we tried to mediate. I tried to mediate, I'll say. I asked her to go into joint counseling. I've engaged her father. I've engaged friends to try and, like, I'll pay you whatever you want. I will uh, let me see the kids a little bit. But basically, I'll agree to any demand she wants. It's not enough. There's, there's literally nothing I can provide my wife that she would agree to. What she has to have is me eliminated. She has to have me in jail or dead um, to keep me from, from the boys knowing what our life was like before. She has to keep all of the fraudulent activity that she's performed hidden from the kids. Because if they learn what she did with the ski crampons or the tax fraud, okay, or the employment fraud, um, or that where they've moved or so on, or why they no longer do ski racing, why they're no longer in school, all of those things enter their head, they will not like her anymore. And that's what she has to, that's her main motivation is to keep the boys from learning anything about their father and what my wife has done over the last couple of years. Um, and so there's, there's nothing I can, um, no money, no, um, can satisfy her. No, no custody arrangement can satisfy her. Um, I would say even only total silence and probably for, for her at this point, me being in jail or dead would be the only thing that would, um, satisfy her, her anxiety or her fear. Scott, I just want to know your opinion on something, okay? Um, you see a lot of times when we look at the cases that have been happening, you know, abduction and also alienation cases, and when I talk to parents, it seems like a constant theme here where the, you know, childcare or like, you know, those people like the police, social workers and all that, they tend to get fooled by the abductor and ended up supporting the abductor. I'm not sure if they got manipulated into it or they're receiving some kind of financial incentive to help them, but that seems to be a constant thing that's happening. Why do you think that is happening based on your own experience? Why do you think the people who are supposed to be protecting the kids and those who are getting alienated are the ones that end up helping the abductors and the alienators? Whether whether it's the Hague or child services, okay, or child protection services, I think most of these organizations actually um, aid the abductor in most cases, psychiatrists too. Um, you see it in, yeah, what I just read in the news yesterday that the biggest case of money laundering comes from the top guy in America who is an expert on preventing money laundering, okay? Um, these organizations that are designed um, to help children, okay, have actually been infiltrated on people that are um, doing just the opposite. They're, in, they're engaging with the people. So my, I can just imagine my wife goes to child services and she, or I actually have it written down, she's holding the hand of her friend and she's crying the whole time saying my kids are being tortured and terrified, okay? All this totally made up. But it doesn't matter, those people, those women that are all there think, oh my God, we have to help this woman, okay? And so they, so they make a report against me. And I know, so in my particular case, I took, a, I went to the child services and I took a photo book of, with a hundred pages of me being with my boys just in the last year, even after the separation, okay? And I showed them all being happy with me. They never let me back. They took the kids away from that situation because it was so obvious that what my wife had done was lie about her, the whole thing that I was, that I was a monster and I broke the narrative just by showing this, um, just by showing this photo book. And I think that 
the bureaucrats in these organizations are um, almost universally helping the child abductors. Okay, if you're a money launderer, you're helping the money launderers. Um, if you are a tax collector, you're helping the tax cheats more than stopping the tax collector, um, the, the, the tax cheaters, for example. I think these these institutions institutions have mostly been captured um, by people and can be overwhelmed by particularly charismatic people like my wife. Um, and I don't know. I, I see it throughout throughout our society um, is how she can get uh, she can get a psychiatrist to write a report that is favorable to her because she. I know she went to three or four of them and found one that would write a favorable one. The court ordered one said, wrote something else. I don't know what it is, but it's gone missing. Um, but she was able to shop around until she found one that was favorable to her and then uh, submit that. Scott, based on everything you've been talking about, right, I think it's clear for me that we need to, you know, rewrite, rethink, restructure and reform the family courts, the people who are working within a family court, you know, childcare, and even all the way up to the Hague Convention um, on how they deal with abductors and alienators. Because I feel like the courts and the people who are working within this particular space have no clue how to figure out what are the early signs and what are the indications of somebody might be lying because they tend to buy the words of the abductors more than the people who got abducted. So what do you think of that particular thought? I think um, I think sh shared parenting should be the default uh, scenario. So we see that in a place like Sweden, okay, where there's the, the court is rarely involved in a divorce. It's just the default is you, you share the, the child 50-50. And what I see in the, in the Western world, I can't speak about... I know a little bit about Japan, but not in particular. Um, but this idea that there's 50-50 parenting, but it's really four days or two weekends a month, which is four out of 30 days, and they call that 50%. It's just total bullshit um, from, a, from a fairness perspective. So already the court is oriented against fathers. Okay, So I would see there's a big advantage in changing that back to 15 days out of 30 days a month. The fathers get half time and the mothers get half time. So I, I, I do see that as leveling the playing field if we're going to get the courts involved um, in divorce. But I think more often the, the courts, we should have some other process, what did I say, rather, rather than increasing the court's involvement and divorce, we should be minimizing them and doing something closer to what Sweden does. And it's just say, it's it's just a formula. If you decide to live in separate places, the kids go 50-50. There's no, um, you, don't, you don't go to court to get a divorce. Um, and I'll say in my, my particular case, if my, if my wife had not been let's say, coached by a psychiatrist and a lawyer and all these um, professionals that are involved in the family court system, I don't think it's in her nature to be combative, combative with me. And I don't think it's in her nature to harm the kids. And yet she's turned into like the worst mother I could imagine. She's destroyed our kids um, and their livelihood. Um, but it's more because she's been caught in this cascade of, of these experts, lawyers and psychiatrists and judges and so on, all trying to um, extract something from me instead of um, not being involved in a court system. So I, I support, uh, I would support removing child um, or the whole family from the judicial system more than I would support, um, let's say, advocating for a new law. There's, pl there's plenty of laws that are supposed to protect kids and stop child abuse and those kind of things. And they're clearly not um, 
uh, enforced. I know, I know in the UK because I've looked into this in detail, and I've looked in in the US that more than ninety percent of violations of child custody, okay, by by mothers in particular, are not enforced. So they can even if they're supposed to share the kids 50-50 and they keep them at home um, and don't allow the fathers to see them, they're not enforced. So what it tells me is that there's plenty of laws. There's a lack of enforcement about those laws. And I don't, there's no mechanism to um, increase the enforcement of those laws. Um, so what we need to do is remove the families from uh, the legal system entirely as much the way it's done in Sweden and just say, it's a, it's a, a contract that you sign. If you split up, it's 50, 50, just automatically. Um, and, um, and, um, that's, that's the default. And you begin there. It doesn't start this war in the legal system and, um, tens of thousands of dollars with lawyers and psychiatrists and guardian and items. And, it's just uh, it goes on and on, and I I know in Japan there's where I do know is that you know one parent often gets uh, singular custody, which is even worse. Um, it, it it gives it, it creates a playground for somebody to take advantage and use the child as a weapon, and the children should have rights away from the parents and be protected. And that's where I would say the children deserve not to be caught in this warfare um, between a parent. Something that I've noticed uh, while talking to a lot of parents who have gone through similar situations, and you as well, is that it's very easy to claim domestic violence and get away with it. People tend to believe it without questioning it too much. I'm not trying to say that it doesn't happen, but I'm trying to say that the reverse is true as well. Where it didn't happen and someone is weaponizing the empathy that others have, to win the argument or case, do you think we need more qualified people who are trained to correctly assess the difference between fake domestic violence accusations and the real one? Or do we need some kind of new training that all the people who are involved in family court, child care, child services and all that to go through so that they can correctly assess these situations? Um, let's see. Uh, so my and I've looked into this in in a lot of detail that more than eighty percent of domestic abuse charges and rape charges, okay, are never are never corroborated or no evidence is is presented or people are charged, okay. And the the consensus view in in the media is that number of false allegations is small, like in the single digits, two three percent, okay. When it's it's very clear if you actually look into the court cases that a majority of allegations of domestic abuse or rape are false allegations. That is un unequivocally true. Um, I know it's um, it offends a number of like, particularly feminists and other people want to believe that women are always victims, um, but it, it's not just women. It's it's men. Women are also victims in these. The the courts are continually overwhelmed with more cases of alleged abuses than anything they can corroborate or charge people with. Um, and so people are put in jail and people are, um, are have their lives ruined, their livelihoods ruined, they lose their job, all just based on an allegation before anything, any single shred of evidence is proven. And we have a, the Western world and I would include Japan as part of the Western world. We have a legal system where you are, the, the idea is that you're innocent until proven guilty. That's the original idea, but that has been eroded to the point, particularly with the Me Too movement of the last few years, where you're assumed guilty and then you have to prove your innocence. And this is particularly true in uh, sexual assault and domestic abuse. This is the, the leading edge like if you're commit if you've been alleged to have committed a ta tax fraud or something usually you're given more until you prove the case until you go to court then if you've been alleged to have committed a sexual act for example you're often um considered guilty and it's 
um, this is what's happened over time with our legal system, and 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 this includes Japan. And I think the so in my my view, the solution is not um, to just prosecute people that make false allegations. That would that would help, but the ultimate remedy is to go back to the way our court system worked 100 years ago, where people were considered innocent. The burden of proof was on the accuser. Today, the burden of proof is on is on the defendant. You have to prove your innocence. And we need a wholesale um, system, not just the family or um, these rape charges against young men or even older men, um, any kind of sexual assault or domestic abuse. It's completely perverted. Um, and this isn't how our legal system was was designed. Um, and so we have to, rather than have new laws or new penalties um, for accusers, what we just need is to go back to um, innocence until you're proven guilty and that the burden of proof is on the accuser. And I think what we know is that um, 90% of domestic abuse charges, of domestic abuse allegations, would be dismissed immediately because there's no there's no evidence. Um, there's not even, and you could say, so, so then people come and say, well, I don't have evidence. Well, that that is exactly how the legal system is based. You have to have some kind of evidence. There has to be a bruise. There has to be a police report. Okay, my, for example, in my city, that I abused the kids like two years previously and got someone to write a medical certificate that there are bruises from two years ago because um, she's a running friend of my wife. And um, this is not, um, this is not going to create any kind of justice in the system. All this does is um, incentivize people to create uh, false allegations. And we, you know, it's, we see it throughout uh, the legal system and whether it's in, well, you see it in politics and in um, the media personalities and so on. Many people are being accused of sexual assault today that um, are that are exonerated um, later, and um, but it destroys their life in the in the medium term. It's a real failure of our legal system. It's it's a much bigger problem than creating, in my view, much bigger problem than creating a new law today. Scott, I think your situation is one of the best to describe that uh, this can happen to anyone. You had a completely normal family normal marriage and you had a supportive wife and all that was going well. You had good children who looked up to their parents and all that. There was no problems there. And you were a devoted father and husband. But things kind of flipped all of a sudden and everything changed. And when people are listening to this, they also might now realize that this can happen to them as well. And I know that certain people are listening into this particular conversation now might be listening because they already saw some kind of early signs about this. So what is the advice that you have for people who are going through this, but in the very early pace of things so that they can help themselves from escalating it further, how they can manage this situation better according to your own experience? Right. So, yeah, I, I like to, I, I think of many things I could have done in retrospect. I want to say, for at least a year after this, um, my, my wife was telling me I did X, Y, and Z, all these things. And I kept chasing after them and documenting them and saying, I didn't do this. I didn't do that. And I realized I was being gaslit. She, she was constantly uh, deflecting me when all of the focus should have been on her. And it took me, I'll say, a year till I realized that what she was telling me when she said I was the child abuser, she was the child abuser, right? When I was committing tax fraud, she was the one committing tax fraud. I had to turn, it, it took me about a year for me to get my mind together to realize that I'm not the one who's crazy. Um, and that, like, if I thought yesterday the sky was blue and today it's whatever, green, um, 
that I wasn't um, reality. What really happened with the kids is what really happened. I had them yesterday. It wasn't. I'll get. Um, I didn't bring this up. Uh, we'll talk about the. She said I took the kids to a war zone because we went on a beach holiday in Morocco, and totally uh, tried to convince the court that I was um, this um, um, abusive abusive risk-taking father. Um, but I go back to what what I learned is that I kept reacting to these outrageous statements by my wife reflexively. And if I could go back or give any kind of um, advice to someone suddenly in a, in a similar situation where everything's turned upside down quickly, I refer to it like an earthquake, like literally my life turned upside down in a day, like everything was just totally blown up. And um, instead of listening to what my wife said, I should have focused on her and that she was having this problem of being fearful. And all the things that she told me were complete lies. And rather than listening to her and trying to defend myself, which is what actually we were just talking about, how I kept having to defend my innocence in court. I wish I had spent less time in it, uh, defending my innocence in the court and focused actually on my wife and trying to bring her level of fear down and realizing that there's this mental anxiety going on in her life and who she is and how she perceives herself and to try and bring that down. And I think I could have um, protected my kids. I told my kids, I said, terrible things are happening. You gotta tell the truth. You gotta, um, you gotta protect yourself because there's all these delusions going on. But they were, they became captive to her, and I could have. Uh, they weren't old enough to truly understand the situation. And I'll say, even in my adult life, I didn't fully understand the fear and the anxiety she was facing. And if I had instead um, focused on just um, calming her fears and getting her um, um, somehow a little more balanced. That I could have um, and not listen to what I have. This is a hard thing. You have to basically either ignore or contradict or assume everything she says is a total lie, opposite. And then you can start to see where her fears are and try and bring her back to some kind of cognitive balance. And I think then I could have, uh, you know, prob res restored our family in some way. Um, but once the courts got involved and like if you're accused of violence, once once you're criminally charged with jail, you've got to defend yourself um, vigorously and robustly. And when you do that, you humiliate your wife because she's she's committed all this. All the allegations are fraudulent. So then she's embarrassed by it all. And so once that process begins in the court system, it's like a meat grinder. Once you're in there. It's almost impossible to extract yourself. You got to intervene early and bring her, um, or bring your spouse, whether it's man or woman. Um, you got to bring the fear down. And I think that um, even even cases where you don't have uh, a great marriage, where you see some kind of mental stability early on, it's usually some level of fear or anxiety. And I think there's um, it's better to focus on their mental state. Than it is uh, going down the, the lawyer route and uh, all these experts and saying I got to document this and I got to defend myself here and there. Um, that's just a road to perdition and more more disaster. It, it just makes the the whole situation worse. You got to uh, can't depend upon the the court system or the child services or legal system. You got to really solve your this mental health problem is intervene as early as possible as my recommendation. Another thing that I find unique about your situation is that there was no uh, allegations of affairs happening and all that, because when I talk to a lot of parents, right, it's either the kids getting gaslighted by the abductor saying that the other parent had an affair and that's why they are a bad person and all that. And sometimes it's true, but a lot of times it's not, right? 
And even if somebody have gone to an affair, that you can get divorced and you can still end up co-parenting. Uh, a lot of people are good parent but bad partner, right? So they really want to take care of the kids, but they might have difficulty in being in a monogamous kind of marriage, right? So these two things are completely different. So what's your opinion on that? Yes, I think, and uh, probably a majority of divorces have some kind of affair or adultery. Okay. And, and that came up immediately, like when I had to announce to my family what was going on, well, there, it's, it's almost like assumed there must be some kind of um, marital, like a marital problem. And even, I want to say even the first few weeks, I was like, maybe I didn't take my wife to dinner enough or we, you know, because we have these three. Boys. Yeah, I noticed that's what happened to guys. They tend to think like maybe I did not pay enough attention or did I didn't do enough as a husband kind of thing. Yeah, you have, I mean, I, you know, our marriage had gone from with three boys and they're teenagers at that point there. My role as a father is, you know, I would say I was more devoted to that than being a husband. So I thought, okay, well, we didn't, you know, we hadn't taken a holiday, just the two of us recently. And, and I spent a lot of time talking to um, friends and, and even my wife had said that, well, you know, we haven't had a lot of sex lately or things like that. And I thought, oh, well, you know, maybe this is how I screwed up. This is why everything broke down. But that was another just bit of gaslighting. And, and the more I learn about other marriages that have break, broken down, and I think there are affairs and there are adultery in other, in other cases. I would say, in, at least in many of those cases, the affairs are often a manifestation of the same um, anxiety and mental breakdown that starts before. And the affair is just, it happens afterwards. Um, but in our case, um, in, in my case, there was no affair. As far as I know, my wife was not unfaithful. I was not unfaithful. Um, and there was some. Um, I know in the the, the previous uh, just in the previous months before this earthquake, she had taken my son's phone. She was she had a fear that I was being unfaithful with a work colleague or something, which was all uh, which wasn't true. But she was trying to. She was a bit jealous, so there was some there was some fear of it that I was being unfaithful. But there was no um, like even today she wouldn't. She wouldn't allege nothing ever happened. And um, and so my um, so my lesson from all of this and talking to lots of other people now that have gone through some sort of difficult divorce or family situation, sometimes the divorce, uh, sometimes the adultery is the trigger. OK, but many times it's the symptom and not the trigger of something else that's happening. Um, and to me, it only shows the, in my case, how my, how our marriage was actually quite like it was stable and normal. We had a really functional family and then it all just tore apart, like in, um, matter of months. And, um, and then once the legal system and the police got involved, it just, it went from bad to worse to, um, absolute nightmare um they the legal system has been nothing but a i want to say a. I I don't think my wife seeked at all to do what she's i don't think she's evil by character but once she got caught in a, a downward cycle and then she'd get humiliated by the court then she'd um escalate the lies to the next one and it became darker and darker and darker to um, where I've said, I think um, murder and suicide is not un, um, outside the realm of possibility in my situation. It's that uh, it's become that um, stark in our situation. Something else that I've noticed uh, while talking to a lot of parents like yourself is that, you know, as a parent, your responsibility or what you feel is your responsibility is to make sure that you are there for the kids, 
you know, raise them to be good people and all that. But when alienation or abduction happens, that particular responsibility gets uh, ripped away from you without you doing anything wrong. So I'm wondering, how are you coping with that? Because while talking to you, I feel like you're more grounded. You are not as the other parents I've seen who go through depression, go through PTSD, trauma and all that, and might end up, you know, uh, drinking a lot to cope with that and all that. But you seem to be somewhat in a healthy mind space. That's what I'm getting from you. So what do you think that you did different to be in this particular state where you're still hopeful, still trying to figure out how to do your best? Well, I don't, um, I think even from the beginning, I see my, my role as a father as, as protecting my kids and taking care of them and teaching them. Like I, I have a very, did it, um, my kids are not my, to be my friends. They're not my accessories. They're not, um, to bring, um, like they're not my legacy in the sense of something I want, I want to particularly be proud of. I see my, it's like my job is to protect them and to teach them and to take care of them. And I feel like they're more in peril than ever. Um, so I think different from some fathers, I don't feel like I've been, they've been stolen from me. Like I can't have birthdays with them. I don't have enjoyment. Like I don't get to ski with them anymore. I don't get to have happy, you know, times playing games with them. That's true. Those things are missing, but those aren't the things that I miss. I'm still so focused on my kids are like, I'm, I think my oldest son, Brig, I, I don't know, there's a 50% chance that he commits suicide or that he never leaves the home. So I'm I'm so focused on trying to get him away from this captive situation that he's in. He's a hostage and I'm the hostage negotiator. Maybe later on, all those other emotions will come to me that I'm, um, that I failed as a father. They're not as educated as, as I would like to be. But at the moment, I'm just, I feel like I'm a hostage negotiator. How can I get these three children to safety from this uh, lunatic um, who's um, keeping them imprisoned? And um, it may, maybe that does keep me sane at the moment um, rather than um, feeling sad about my current situation. But it does keep me particularly focused. But I've always been this way about being a, being a father, very dedicated to my role. Um, of bringing them up and not just being their companion or their friend. I, I don't see my role as a father being like best friends to my kids. It's my job is to make them adults of high character and um, and great citizens of society. And um, and right now I feel like they're in they're in grave peril, and um, that keeps me I think dedicated to this task. So what do you think uh, will happen to your situation moving forward? And what are, you, what are your thoughts when it comes to the chances of you being able to reunite with your kids? So um, there's hope <laughs> and there's reality. Um, I don't, uh, my, my hope is that my, my twins who are uh, 15 going on 16 will eventually go to university and they'll move away. Um, from the house, and I think what's important is that they're removed from my wife's control. Um, she, my oldest son Brig, is really he captured. He doesn't have any friends. He has no social media pro footprints or anything. He doesn't go to school. He has no. Um, he doesn't do any sports. So he's like a, he's basically locked in a room, and I'm afraid that he will continue to live there um like if you've watched the movie the joker for he'll be caused he'll be a um a prisoner of this woman for his adult life okay so i have very great fears about my oldest son my older my younger twins i think and because they're together that they will eventually break um once once they get to university hopefully or get outside the home, all of a sudden, all these, all the delusions and 
apparitions of my wife will suddenly become apparent to them. And I, I do think that they'll reach out to me and we'll be able to build, um, uh, we'll have a relationship of some kind. Um, and I, I don't have, um, I just know I can't, there's no negotiating with my wife of like shared time. There's no, um, there's no, like you can't negotiate with a terrorist. There's no, there's no way um, we can um, come to any agreement. There's nothing I can offer her that would solve, solve this situation. There has to be, they have to break free from her and say, okay, that's totally insane what was going on in the house. And they're now on their independent life. I think that um, hitting, hitting puberty. So even though my oldest son, Brig is 17, he's, I was very late in hitting puberty and he's, I wasn't until I was 17 or 18. So he's right at that age. He looks, he's very thin as far as I know. I would expect him to be like, like that. Um, but I think there's, there's also that element where you become rebellious and being boys that the testosterone fills them up and they, they start to resist this controlling environment that they're in. So, um, I think there's a positive, um, hope that, that at least my twins managed to emerge from this captivity and, I give, so I give that a high probability in the next five years. And for my oldest son, I don't know, it's 50, 50, I would say um, that he can emerge from the house, but um, you can't, there's no way they can um, live a productive life in the household with, with my wife at the moment um, with her current, psychological state yeah something that uh i kind of haven't talked too much about is the influence and the people around your wife that haven't like you know taken any action to indicate to her that what is she doing is wrong i mean you know she has her own family and they are married and they have kids and of course they know that uh abducting your kid or like alienating a parent from the kid is quite painful for the other parent so I'm just wondering what's uh, your opinion or, or what are your thoughts when it comes to the friends and family that your wife has who haven't advised her against it or haven't advised her to like, you know, reconcile with your husband and make sure that you don't alienate ki uh, the kids from their father. Yeah, I do. There's um, so there's uh, let me put it in perspective. There's a few people that have continued to support her. Um, her, when when this first started, she tried to um, tell lots of people what a what a horrible life she's had, and I've been abusing her for twenty years, and um, and so there was over a year or two, there was like a, a, a tension with a number of our mutual friends and neighbors and so on, um, of which side of the story, and maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle, and that that took. Um, a lot of effort to try and, um, or and it was it was a difficult to to be in that situation, but over time, what's happened now, three four years later, um, is that ninety five percent of those have left her because they've realized that all of her, and she's moved out of Chamonix, the town we're in, and gone to somewhere else so that she could talk to people that knew nothing about her and create a new life but she's she used to be active on instagram and facebook for example and she no longer uh, participates in those her her network of friends has dramatically been able to um, um put put on her by by putting information about about what happened it's made her recoil and and um bring her back more and more into um I want to say retreat into who she is. She's no longer out um, promoting that she's this great mother and that I'm a horrible father. Um, but that being said, there's still, um, let's say a handful of people like her father um, that still support her. And 
my my message to them to give you some idea i've asked them i've i've even offered them like you know ten thousand dollars to write a to write a legal statement against me if you know anything that i've done um you know write write down under oath under penalty of a fine or or jail because it's under oath write down something that i've um, some act I've committed against my wife or the kids, some act of violence or something that I've done. And they ref- um, they refuse to do that. And they've all, this handful of people, I'll say there's like five or six people, they've all balked me on social media. So as soon as I ask them with questions like this, you know, here's, here's your chance. You can debate me in public. You can tell me what I've done wrong or def- defend my wife for what her claims are, even... Uh, explain what one of her claims are against me and they've all retreated and said nope i won't do that you're an asshole i'm not going to talk to you just i'm an asshole just for asking for a discussion about it the clarity so it's just like being deplatformed on social media you know you see it politically as well as soon as you provide some element of the truth you get you get deplatformed by these people but i've managed to reduce the number of people that are supporting my wife to a very small number. And I'm going to try and continue to do that so that, um, my, uh, so my kids have, um, a bigger universe to reach out to. And, um, that's something else I've imagined. I, from my friends who have been supportive of, have tried to reach out to my kids. They, um, they send them messages on social media and um, at least the ones they can't, again, communicate with my oldest boy, but with my twins, they uh, send them emails and uh, messages on Instagram and so on. And there's very, there's not a lot of communication, but at least there's some response. They're willing to, uh, um, they know that there's an outer world that they can escape to once they're, once they're free of this situation. Some fathers that I've spoken to uh, outside of this podcast, I don't think we talked too much about it in the podcast, but I do remember a few episodes that we kind of went into this particular topic. So they say that, uh, you know, all these uh, feminist uh, empowerment kind of talk where a woman who is uh, independent, a single mother with kids taking care of both the kids and a career is kind of celebrated within that particular culture. Do you think that inspired your wife to take such actions so that she can be a single mother and also take care of your kids and all that. Before you say that, let me just uh, say that I have nothing against single mothers who are taking care of their kids and all that. That is a good thing. But I'm just saying that, uh, do you think that that inspired her to take such actions? Because there are some fathers who say that uh, before any alienation abduction happened with their family, the wife was... uh, kind of bought into the feminist and also the independent single mom kind of movement? Uh, yes. Uh, I, I can even, I'll even amplify that. I think that the, when, if so now I'll return back to when she had this, let's say a midlife crisis and was feeling, she had just visited her grandmother and was, who was dying of terminal cancer she was feeling her own mortality, right? A very common, a midlife crisis. She's 50 years old. There's menopause. This is natural, right? This is not, it's not something unnatural and not something uh, to be hidden in my view. Okay. Maybe some people don't want to talk about it, but I think this is what you have to come to terms with in your life. And you can deal with it as an adult or you can deal with it petulantly as a child. And she dealt with it in a petulant way. Okay. But when she reached out to the psychiatrist and then later, like the lawyer and the child services and so on, they were telling her things like, oh, you know, do whatever that makes you feel good. If, if you're afraid of your husband, because like you don't have all the money you want to spend <laughs> or your kids aren't perfect, then, you know, just throw him away and you can celebrate yourself. It's like, you can choose your own gender today. Why she can? I think she's even thought about that. Maybe she's gay. Um, this is all part of the the current zeitgeist in the world, is to somehow 
boost your self-esteem falsely instead of, I would say, what I would tell her is go out skiing and feel good about building up your self-esteem instead of this current world where just be a single mother, put a pretty picture of yourself on Instagram and pretend that you don't have any gray hair and that you're uh, as beautiful as you were when you were 25 years old. And if you just close your eyes, you pretend that you're the greatest person on earth and you'll feel better. And I think that's the coaching that you get today, even by professional psychologists. And it's certainly what you get on social media today. Being a single mother is somehow cool. And being a gay single mother is even more cool. Um, so um, I very much think that I, I've been caught up in this cultural tidal wave of um, of this fake self-esteem promotion um, in, in this crisis instead of more traditionally trying to enter herself. And I, I don't think it it had to happen if she had gotten the right advice from some other people or at a different time in history. Like if, if I was 10 years younger, I don't think this would have happened. Um, for example. Yeah. I can understand how with the wrong advice, the, the wrong influence, she associated all a midlife crisis and her feeling a low self-esteem to you. And then decided to remove you from her life in this way. It is, it is very broadly what happened. And I think that, But once, just add a little subtlety to it, once we started in the court system where it became adversarial in terms of like once I'm threatened with jail, right, and being accused of of abusing the kids, then it became so contentious because you have to defend yourself. And then she's humiliated because I have all the evidence against her. Then it it takes on a whole other life of its own. It's not just like, a simple allegation like, well, I don't like my husband anymore. I'm going to toss him aside. It turns into something much darker. Like it becomes a campaign to, I don't think she hates me. What she's trying to do is protect her own self-esteem because now she's being um, exposed publicly as a complete fraud. And that's the most humiliating thing to her. So I agree with how how it started, but once the ball started rolling, it became unstoppable um, because these these kids are in peril um, and they have to be defended, and there's no mechanism to um, to stop it unless I'd if I had stopped it if I had recognized this um, what you just said like that she was caught up in this cultural wave um, and that just the men are responsible for everything. And and somehow I dealt with that on a psychological level right from the beginning and, and not just believed what she told me, that I think I could have stopped this um, this cancer. But once it, um, I didn't realize it till too late. Um, and then once the court system involved and the police system are involved, there's, um, uh, there's no, no chance. It just it, it it turns from bad to worse because you have to defend your you you have to prove your innocence and as soon as you prove your innocence you prove the fraud of your accuser um, and that it's all false allegations and that's what I get into this is the whole point is this it's not like she made stuff up from like she embellished the truth she made stuff up that was just com- like total imagination maybe something she read in a book or watched in a movie and. And then when she's exposed for that, like with teeth, like she, she had these court orders. She had to give me the kids after she had told everybody that I'm like a child abuser. And so then it, it, it just uh, the, reflexively, it gets worse and worse. Um, and I don't know. That's the part where I don't have a good mechanism. Once once this meat grinder of the legal system starts going, um, I don't think there's a good solution um, to it. Yeah, Scott, you know, every time we release a new episode, uh, we get at least about three to 5,000 listens overnight, and then it will grow all the way up to like tens of thousands of listens on every episode. So normally, the abductor and the children have a high possibility of ending up listening to the episode. 
So say that uh, your wife is listening to this particular episode. What is your message to her? And I know I said your wife because you said that. Uh, yeah, no, no, no. You guys I'm, are not divorced. I still refer. To, she's not my ex-wife until I get a divorce. Hopefully, she'll she'll let me have one. Um, you know the. I still, um, I still love her. In the twenty years we have together, and I love the kids and our family. It's, I think that she's as much, she's a victim of this whole legal system and these people that coached her. She's been caught up in this, and I wish, you know, she, she had more strength to defend herself against it. But she's she's fallen into a dark hole, and I think the only way out. I think of it like um, uh, like a drug. She's like a heroin addict now with the lies. Every she has to lie to continue. The lies are so bad now. She has to lie to get out of the lie to cover up, and it goes on and on. She's she's that obsessed. She's like a drug addict. She needs to go to rehab, and I think that. Um, rehab for lying and if you know i don't think that um she's irredeemable i i think she can redeem herself and i don't think that she wants to hurt the children um i know she, she knows she is but she has to deny it to protect this like this bubble around her and all the her self-esteem and her lies and so on so I think that um, she needs to, that she can go to some kind of uh, rehab. It'll be painful for her to recognize. She has to admit that she made some um, big errors and that she's basically destroyed our family for a number of years. Um, And um, if she can admit that and that she began this whole cascade of, errors then i think she can uh, she can recover and i you know a lot of a lot of drug addicts have um um you have mixed results some some don't recover and some do and i think she has a chance um but i don't think there's there's no simple uh there's no simple therapy or there's nothing i can give her that would solve it there's no money that could buy her out um or a change in her status of where she lives or that the kids achieve something, she has to somehow deal with this massive nest of lies that she's built around her of who she is and what happened to the family. And it only comes through admitting um, that she's um, told these horrific lies that have um, captured the kids and destroyed our family life. If she can admit that, then there's um, a, a good future ahead. And that's what I, you know, I tell my my boys to just love her and um, help her. Don't don't believe what she says. Just verify what she says because most of it's a lie. So just. Don't call her a liar. Just try and verify what she says and just love her and help her out of her delusions. And um, I think there's, I think the drug um, rehabilitation is probably the best metaphor that she she has to recover from these these delusions. You know, parental alienation is uh, psychologically is a, a cross-generational delusional disorder. It's 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 all about um, you have a misperception of the reality around you, and you lie. She's lying to herself. She doesn't even recognize that she's lying to me when she tells me that my income was four times what it is. She actually, I think, she actually believes she's lying to herself. She she wants it to be true, so she just tells herself that's what it is. And um, it's okay to forge it because that's what it. There's no there's no penalty for it. So um, she has to. 
unwind those lies and admit um, the, this kind of um, malevolent behavior, this fraudulent bad behavior. You have to admit, you have to say, I was, you're wrong. Like a drug addict has to say, I'm going to stop doing it. I'm going to stop lying. Um, I'm going to stop taking those drugs. And I'm going to go cold turkey. And that's, that's what has to happen. Every, everything about, like, um, if I were to leave with one message, the problem is she lives in this delusional world of lies of who she is, what she is, what the kids are, what I am what money is, it's all one big, or lots of delusions. And those delusions have to end and reintroduce reality. It's not that, um, there's nothing I can give her that will make those go away. She has to decide herself that I'm going to start living in, rather than in la-la land, I'm going to live in reality again. Um, And then everything can I don't want to say won't we'll, won't go back to normal exactly, but at least it'll come back to hopefully a positive result for the family and for the kids. How about a message to your kids if they end up listening to these particular podcasts? Uh, that my uh, that I uh, I continue uh, uh, to try and seek their refuge and safety, and that that I that I love them forever, unconditionally, no matter what. There's no no contingencies on my love for my boys. Um, my, you know, my love for my wife, Lizanne, is, uh, is contingent now on her admitting these fraudulent activities and recovering herself, but not for my boys. It's, it's unconditional for them and that I will, to my dying day, uh, seek their release and uh, protection from this kind of um, abusive behavior. I think they've, they've really suffered under this. Um, not it's, you know, my wife is abusing them, but so is the child services and um, the police that will not enforce a court order to remove them. For example, they've, they've really suffered in not having authorities um, honor their commitments. Um, to protect them, and I failed in my job as a father to protect them, and so I'm just going to continue to um, not give up on that and do my job. Do you want to mention any way for them to get in touch with you if they end up listening to this podcast and do want to get in touch with you? Uh, yes, Google or go to find my parents. <laughs> And uh, I'm sure you you can you can find me. They can find me through you. I really uh, I should say that again. I'm really supportive of this organization. Um, I think there's there's millions of children that have had their parents uh, taken away, and some don't know who they are. Mine are old enough to know who I am, and um, and they know my name, so it's a little bit easier to find me. Um, but I'm I'm trying to make myself, um, like even through this podcast, trying to make myself unerasable. Um, I have, you know, not just on the normal social media platforms. I also have my all my content on IPFS and blockchain and other things that are just unerasable. Um, so even if you know I've canceled my wife has already. I had a website up before and she had it taken down because it said her name she's just tried to block me in all kinds of ways to, I mean, this is what I realized in all these subduction cases, what they're afraid of is the truth coming out. So, um, for my boys, I, I, I don't want to, I want to make sure there's enough information that they can, if they search for me on the internet, they can find out how to reach me wherever I am. Um, they can contact me electronically and then hopefully uh, physically. Um, so, yeah, so that's my message to them. You can find me anywhere. Yeah, for sure, Scott. I will link all your story, your blog, your photo book that you showed me and all that for the audience to see within our show notes. With that said, I'm grateful for you to taking your time to do this particular podcast with us. With that, all the best for the future and I hope things improve for you. 
I would like to remind everyone that our goal here is to share knowledge with you guys and show that you're not alone in this. With that said, if you need specific legal advice, please get your own independent advice from a qualified legal practitioner. If you're a minor or if you happen to have difficulties in understanding certain parts of this episode, please approach a responsible adult or someone knowledgeable on the topic and ask them for clarifications. We have done our best to make sure that it doesn't offend anyone. And if you have further questions or comments regarding Find My Parent or this interview, you can always email me at sk at findmyparent.org. If you're someone who got separated from your own parent and would like to find your parent again, please go to findmyparent.org and fill out your details. With the help of our smart algorithms and matching technology, we hope to help you find your alienated parent or child again. If you're part of an NGO or even a private company passionate about this topic, please reach out through the contact us page in findmyparent.org and we hope to work together with you. All right, folks, that's it for this week. Speak to you next week. Take care. Till then. Double!